We are uh, continuing in, 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 in Mark, in, in the Gospel of Mark, we're chapter 9. Uh, today we're starting in verse 38, so if you want to turn your Bible on, open your Bible, grab one from the chair in front of you, um, we're going to get going here. So, um, Pastor Mike talked uh, the last couple of weeks um, on, on Jesus and, and his ministry as, as him and his disciples are going through things and, and, and their inability to, uh, to heal um, a, a boy who was possessed by, by a demon and, and, and some of these kinds of things. And, and then they go from there into, you know, they, they, the, the, the who's the greatest kind of a speech. You know, can you, can you imagine being Jesus? You know, like, like it says, it actually says that he stayed up all night praying before he chose his disciples. And he's teaching them all this stuff about selflessness, right, and about, about, you know, about how to be and about how to love others and all that kind of stuff. And in the background here, they're having this argument, like, like I'm the greatest. No, I am. No, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. Can you imagine what Jesus was like? I mean, you have to be like, oh my gosh. Just, uh, this is who we are, right? So starting in 38, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, I think that's, that's kind of how we are, aren't we? So, so these guys, I think they, they're starting here even from a place of their own insecurity because, remember, they just couldn't do this very thing themselves. They, they were struggling to, to cast out a demon, and, and now they see this guy, and he's casting out demons, and he's doing it, but they said, look, wait a minute, you're, you're not following us. You're not doing this up to our standard or the way that we would do it, right? And, and, and so, so they were like, hey, we, we were trying to shut this guy down. And Jesus said to him, he said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So their privilege of being able to follow Jesus has actually brought them to a little bit of a place of arrogance. They, 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 they're seeing themselves as like, well, look, if you're going to be in the club, you've you got to be in this club. Churches can do the same kind of thing sometimes, right? Churches can begin to believe instead of recognizing the reality that we are just a local congregation that meets in the greater body of church of, of Christ that's meeting in Sheridan here this morning. Churches can get to thinking that they're the, the one, that, 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 uh, that you got to go to this church. And I want to remind us here this morning that there are a lot of great brothers and sisters out there that see things differently than you and I do at times, right? They, still, it, doesn't make them, it doesn't make them our enemy. It doesn't make them someone to be opposed to. Now, there are issues. There are certainly key issues within our faith that aren't up for debate, you know, we, we'd start talking about the Trinity, that, that we'd start talking about Jesus' death on the resurrection, his incarnation. All of the, a lot of these things, all of these things are, are things that, that we cannot debate about, but there are a number of things that honestly aren't always perfectly clear in Scripture, that Scripture doesn't leave us room at times to be dogmatic about certain things, and when we reach those things, we should be open to, to the reality that maybe we don't have it. I promise you this. When you and I enter into the kingdom, you nor I are going to get the badge of perfect theology, right? I mean, Jesus isn't going to run up to us and go, oh, here, here they are, guys. Here, here he is right now, or here she is, guys, the one I was telling you about. 
the one that got it all right. Come on up, let's put the badge on them, you know. This is not gonna happen. The reality of it is, is, that, is that we're all gonna have some corrections and some things like that. So let's remember that there are brothers and there are sisters out there that see things differently. Um, and that we need to not be churches that are building walls because of our differences, but churches that are building bridges to one another because <clears throat> the wall building that's went on in the church has made the church ineffective in the kingdom to the degree that God would have us to be effective in this world around us. When people look at the church, a lot of times they're like, well, how come they can't get along, right? They can't seem to figure it out. They can't seem to get unified. And, and, and see, the beauty of the church is, is that there's meant to be diversity within the church. There are different styles of churches. There are different, there's different worship. There's, there's different styles of worship and expression of worship. And, and those things are okay, and there should be a variety of those things because people like different things. This church isn't a fit for everybody. But for those who God calls, this church is, is our church family. It's our, it's our place. But that doesn't mean that we start to see what we're doing as, as superior to what everyone else is doing, right? And so just a little reminder that this thing is going to end with the idea of being at peace with one another. As a matter of fact, Paul, Paul dealt with this very thing, too, in Philippians. Philippians 1, uh, 15 through 18. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So when Jesus is preached and he's preached in truth, regardless of motive, Paul says, we would rejoice in that because that means that the gospel is going forth. You see, the, the gospel and the message of the gospel is just true. It doesn't matter who utters the things out of their mouth, right? I mean, honestly, if El Chapo said Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he died on the cross to save mankind from their sins, that's just as true, right? Now, don't get me wrong. We're not supporting or, 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 or thinking that we want to be listening to El Chapo's preaching, but we don't want to be divisive. So we move on now, and, and Jesus now moves in and he says this, for, he says, uh, for the one who is not against us is for us, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And, and so Jesus is saying, like, look, even the smallest things, even the, the smallest things for the kingdom are, are going are gonna to be rewarded. The, the people who, who do these things are not going to miss a reward for their efforts to even give a glass of water. He now begins to make a transition, and he begins to make a transition out of the idea of reward and into a reminder that being a disciple is a life of sacrifice. It's offering ourselves back to God and it's not just about reward. So let's look at this. It starts to get a little bit heavier here. Now, we don't like this because 
We, we like nice, fluffy Jesus, but, but, but this is going to kind of, this is going to take a turn on us here. It says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So Jesus loves the little children, right? Jesus loves the children, and what he's saying is this. He's saying that, look, if you're somebody who would take the faith of a child and cause that child to stumble, you would be better off if you got a whole, the big millstone, not a smaller one, a big one hung around your neck and just tossed off into the ocean and taken down into the depths of that and crushed by the pressure of the ocean. Jesus is saying, look, this is not something to take lightly. That we should never cause a little one to stumble. That those who come in, in that kind of faith, that we are to be people who are building and growing and edifying and helping. <clears throat> See, our world is in trouble today. And, and a big part of why our, our world is in trouble today is because with the family has, has broken down. We, we've seen, the, we've seen the, the, the destruction of the family. We've seen the enemy come in and, and begin to challenge the, the, the things of God, the institutions of God, marriage and, and family. And as we see these things break down and break apart, we see these little ones begin to stumble and struggle. We see the depths of the struggle that, that starts to go on in the world out there when we're, when we're so upset. And as the church, this is something that we have got to get a hold of. The church has got to begin to rebuild families. We've got to begin to, to do that within here, within these walls. And then we've got to be a people that, that, that are going out and telling people that we have the answer. That the answer to the struggles that are, that are, that are out there are just the natural progression of us moving away from God. As we move away from God, we, 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 we move away from the source of life. We, we begin to devalue life. We begin to, um, we, we begin to minimize our sin and these other things. And this is the very thing that, that Jesus begins to, to remind us of here. He begins to talk to us about sin. And we talk about sin in here. And a lot of times we'll just say this. We'll say sin is an archery term. And we'll say... Sin means to miss the mark. So it means to, to shoot an arrow, basically, and miss the bullseye, and anything that does that is sin, and that's the truth. But that's not all sin is. Sin isn't just missing the mark. Sin is actually binding yourself to something that is not of God. It is, it is gravitating to and holding on to something that is not godly, something that God hasn't ordained, something that God isn't warning us against it. It's, it's, it's something that we're, we're going to that we're not supposed to. It's binding ourselves. It's aligning ourselves with the thing that is ungodly. And so Jesus begins to, to speak to us out of that. And he says this, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, for it is better if you enter life lame than two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
For the Jews, there were six experiential organs. There was your mouth, your nose, your ears, your eye, your hand, and your foot. And, and Jesus chooses three of these things kind of to, to be a little bit um, explicit with this. Uh, and he starts with this idea of your hand. And he says, look, if, you're, if your hand would cause you to sin, cut it off. Now, what is he talking about? Is Jesus saying, like, literally, are we to cut our hands? Well, of course, we would just all be like this. It's hyperbole. So hyperbole is, is using something, it's, it's making a drastic example out of something to make a point. And so what is Jesus telling us? He's telling us, he's saying, do big things to get sin out of your life. Do drastic things to get sin out of your life. Don't, don't align yourself to it. Don't hold on to it. Don't gravitate towards it. Flee from it. Get it out of your life. If there's something in your life that is, making, that, it, that, is, that is causing you, if there's sin in your life that you cannot get away from, then you have to do drastic things to get it out of your life. And he starts with this idea of the hand. And the hand is this interesting thing in the Bible because the hand could either be about protection or it can be about harm. His hand was upon me, could go either way. His hand was upon me to keep me safe or his hand was upon me in judgment. And so, but the idea of the hand is what you do. It's what we're doing. The connotation of that for the Jewish people that they would have understood very well was it's what you do. So Jesus is going to talk about what you do, where you go, and what you take into yourself, what you see. So it's this hand, and he says to cut it off. And he's saying like, hey, if the computer causes you to sin... If you end up in a cycle, if you're trapped in a cycle of pornography today and you cannot get out, then you need to take the computer and throw it out on the front lawn. Do something extreme to get it out of your life. Don't think that you're going to be strong enough. You haven't been. Don't think that things are going to change or that something's going to change in your life or whatever and it's just going to all work out. No, it's not. You've tried that before. We've all went through these cycles of sin where we've tried to be enough. But you see, your self-worth, will, your self-efforts will always leave you short in that. You might be really good. If you're like me, you might be really good on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. By Thursday, you're fading. Friday, you're out. This is, this is the problem with the, with the human will is it's insufficient, See, you and I were never designed, we were never meant to walk apart from our creator. The problem with you and I is as we walk apart and we try to be strong enough in our own strength, we'll leave ourselves short. Remember, his strength is not perfected in your strength. His strength is perfected in your weakness, in our admittance of, of that this is real in my life, that this is a struggle in my life, that this isn't blessing me, nor is it blessing anyone around me, but I can't get away from it. And it's got a hold on me, and it's pulling me in. And there's a struggle that I have with it. That's the time where we have to recognize, we admit. And when we admit, <clears throat> that's not about shaming you. The reason God would have you and I admit is to pull us out of denial and into reality. See, if we have no problem, then there's no need. To, no problem, no problem. 
If you and I say we don't have a problem, then there's no need for a solution to our problem. It's only when we recognize that we have a problem that we then begin to seek a solution. And when we enter into reality, this is the place where God heals and changes. This is the place where, where God begins something new in our lives. But we have to be a people who see sin the way that God sees sin. But that's not what's going on in our church culture a lot of times. In our church culture, we're seeing, we're seeing and we're accepting things that the world does. We're listening to every single um, survey out there. We're a people who take surveys all the time. You know why? Because once 51% of the people do X, now X is okay and moral and fine. But that's not how morality works. That's not how ethics work. Ethics are how it ought to be, and God lays us out with an ethical dilemma with who we are. And he begins to tell us to, to, to like, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. You see, the foot is associated with the idea of where we go. In the book of Isaiah, we, we hear this, how blessed are the feet that bring good news, Right? It's this idea that as we're going, what we're doing as we're going makes a difference. So what are we going? Are we going, are we being a blessing? Are we being a curse? Are we setting our children and these little ones up for success? Or are we agreeing with the world? Are we allowing the world's standards to creep in and have them be um, torn down? Because there is a battle in the world that we're in right now. There's an absolute battle for our children and for their minds. And there are, there's, a, there's an on-purpose agenda out there to begin to rewrite morality. And I promise you this, it's everything that is against a Judeo-Christian value system. Do we love sin more than we love Jesus in our lives? Or do you hate sin more than you love your own body? That's the, that's the, the premise of this. It goes on and he, he tells us this. He says, um, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, and the eye is, is this huge thing, biblically, it's, it's this it's this place of, of where everything comes into our lives. It says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Luke 13, 34, the eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. What are you letting into your eyes? What are we allowing into our eyes? Because the eye is the lamp of the body. It goes on to tell us in this, it says, it says that if the, if the light that is in you is darkness, then how dark is the darkness? If even the light that is in you is dark, then how dark does it get? And in the world, we're, we're, one of the challenges of the, the world that we live in today is the accessibility of what comes into our eyes. What we allow into our eyes is, is huge, and what, we have, what we're one click away from. See, one of the problems with, with like something like pornography is that it's the law of diminishing returns. What used to work for you, what used to trip your trigger, will cease to do that for you. It will get boring. And when that does, you'll have to go deeper. 
And then that'll take, have to go deeper. And then it's this hole that it pulls people down into. Mainly men, but not exclusively men in the world today. And there's, there's those of us here today that are struggling with these very things. And so Jesus tells us, do drastic things to get this out of your life. And, and then he uses this idea and these, this, this concept of, he begins to talk about hell. And see, we don't talk about that much in church today. And, and, and that's really a mistake. The church at one point probably talked about it a whole lot too much. But now we're like way over here. We don't ever want to talk about it. But Jesus talked about it. It's one thing I love about teaching expository through the Bible like this is that we got to deal with this stuff. We got to look at it. Hell here, the word that is used here is Gehenna. And, and there were two words predominantly used for hell, Sheol and Gehenna. Sheol was more of kind of a, a waiting place of the, of the dead. But Gehenna is a very different thing. Gehenna was actually a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. Ancient Israel used to, when they, when they had fallen and they had, um, they, uh, they had, had begun to, to worship other deities, one in particular called Molech, who was particularly heinous, and they would take their infant children out into this place, this valley of Hinnon, and they would burn their children right there. Eventually, um, there was a king that came in, Josiah. And it says, this is uh, 2 Kings uh, chapter 23, verse 21, and the king commanded all the people, uh, oh, sorry, He defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of, son, of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the son at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan, Melech, the chamberlain, which was in precincts. And he burned the chariots of the son with fire and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He pulled down and broke into pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians. And, and so, so Josiah went and, and, and he basically went and he desecrated this place and he tore down all of these things. And then he desecrated this place and it was there then made into this place of just refuse. It became a dump. And, 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 and so this was the place where, where the animal carcasses were taken to. This was the place where the sewage is draining into. This is the place where there are these fires and they're actually throwing sulfur into these fires to keep them going so that they can burn the animals. And, and also the bodies of criminals are taken out there. And so when Jesus starts to tell us about hell, he uses this visual of Gehenna, that it's an awful place. It's putrid. It's, it's, it's just awful. It, it smells horrible. There's, there's fire in it. It's full of maggots and worms and different things. And then he talks about this, and he says, it's this place where the worm is never, and the fire are never satisfied. 
where the worm just continues to, to devour. And this is, this is what he's warning us about. He's, he's telling us that, that like sin is like this worm that if, if we just fall into it and we stay in this place and we stay outside of Christ, that it's like this just sin is just devouring us from the inside and it never, ever stops. And, and, it, and it begins to, to, to just eat us up. And, and we can even be believers who are, who are caught up in sin in our lives. And that's a reality that, that Christians are, are caught up in sin. We get deceived at times. And, and we fall into sin and, 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 and we get lost. And Jesus is telling us, if that's you, do drastic things to get it out of your life. Make sure you don't court it. Make sure you don't play with it. Flee from it. And he says, for everyone will be salted with fire. And then it says, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. How serious is God about sin? Well, he cut his own son off so that we could have a way out of that path, so that we could have a way into life, that Jesus became the curse on our behalf, that he became the very embodiment of sin so that he could pay the penalty for it so that you and I could step into eternal life. And he came and he did that as a, as a human being. Why did he do that as a human being? Well, A, because it, only God could solve the problem of humans, but he had to do it as a human. And he had to come down and he had to speak human to us. I was telling somebody the other day, I, was, I used to be a horse trainer, and I said, you know, you got to speak horse because that's all that horses understand, right? They don't know how to speak human. God came as a person, as a human being, so that he could speak human to us, so that we could get it, so that we could understand, so that we could even have uh, any kind of an idea. But this is how serious God is about sin, is that he allowed his only begotten son to pay the penalty for sin for us. And then he tells us about this idea of salt. And he begins to talk. He makes now a, a switch in the in, in the in the text here, and, and he begins to talk about that, you know, that, that people will be salted with fire, but, but that salt is good. And with that, you know, there's, there's different thoughts on this idea, but, but everyone in, in their lives has struggles. It, to some degrees, we're all salted with fire and, and difficulties and hard times and temptations and hard things in our lives. But, but to the ancient people, Salt was a huge, very valuable commodity. Salt was a big deal. As a matter of fact, our word salary comes from some words that mean salt money. Soldiers were paid many times in salt. Two people, if they were entering into an agreement together, they would eat salt together as they kind of bound themselves in a covenant. Salt sometimes even was a symbol of judgment in the case of Lot's wife as she looked back and was turned into um, a pillar of salt. Salt that didn't have its saltiness wasn't good for, to, to flavor food with. 
and it was used as a binding agent. The Romans used it as a binding agent to make kind of a concrete for their roads, and they also used it for floors. And so when Jesus, we'll see here in a minute, when he says that salt that's lost its saltiness is only good to be trampled underfoot, that's what he's talking about, is that, that it's, it's not good to flavor the meat. In other words, it's lost its real purpose. It, it has a high purpose, and it has a, a calling. And salt is this thing that, that it, in days before refrigeration, it was salt that kept things from going bad. It, it kept things from, from rotting. Salt also has this interesting thing. It, it brings out the natural flavors of the food that you put salt on. It, the enzymes, it breaks down the, the cells and the natural flavors come out even more. And see, God has called us to be salt. He's called us to be two things, salt and light, for us to stay salty. But you see, the problem with, with sin is that sin, when we allow it into our lives and we're not cutting it off, we're not getting it out of there, it begins to, to take away the, the, the higher calling of what God has for us. It, it begins to diminish us. We begin to live not for the things of God, but for the sin that we're bound to. If we could go to the next one here. In Leviticus 2.13, click, thank you, oops, back one, did I do it too? Oh, one more time. There it is. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all of your offerings. All of the sacrifices that were given to, to God, salt was added to them. Second Chronicles 13, 5. Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? Salt preserves. It brings out the natural flavor of what's around us. We are not called to be people who are just salt in the wound of the world. Right? Sometimes that's what we are as Christians. We're just salt in the wound, but we're called to be something that's a preservative. We're called to be something that brings out the natural flavor in the world around us. Matthew 5.13 says that very thing. It says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. This is a it's a reminder for us that, that this is what we've been called to, that, that your life is it's important, it's, it's valuable, it's, it's meant for the kingdom, it's meant for relationship with God, and it's meant to be spent on others. And, and when we do that, we, we begin to find the purpose that we're really looking so hard for out there. But if we allow sin to rule and reign in our lives, then it begins to, to limit what we can do and how we do it. It, it begins to, to diminish us as the people that God intends that we would be. And it takes us away from the high calling that God has in our lives. Be salt and light. Be salt and light. Preservative to the world around you. Recognize and don't make enemies of the world out there. Don't expect unbelievers to act like they're believers. 
Lost people do lost things. Hurting people hurt people. But we're called to be salt. We're called to be a preservative in the world around us. We're, we're called to, to, to bring out the flavor in the world around us, the, the original intention that God had, that we would be a people that are about restoration and that we would be light. Where the world walks in darkness, we would be a, a beacon. We would be a light, a place where they felt like they could come in and something could be different in their lives. It ends by saying, be at peace with one another. It kind of began with the idea of a little bit of a war. They're not with us. Therefore, we tried to shut them down. But we're called to be at peace with one another. We're called to be a people that are peacemakers, right? Not just peacekeepers, peacemakers. Those who go out and promote peace. One of the big problems with the church today is that we're not peacemakers. We're going out and we're attacking the world around us. Jesus came for the world. We're supposed to come for him too. We're supposed to be his hands and feet. We're supposed to go out and he's got each of us uniquely positioned in places in this community to make a difference. You have relationships and you have unique opportunities before you to love well, to be a light, to be salt to the world around you. But we have to be real with this thing. We have to understand that there is a reality that the Bible teaches, and it teaches it plainly. Jesus is teaching this plainly, that if sin rules and dominates in our lives, then that's an incredibly precarious place to live your life. I can't tell you always where God is with this, but what he's saying is if we would rather hold on to our sin than grab on to him as he reaches out for us or the world out there, that there's a place that we will spend eternity somewhere, that every human being will spend eternity somewhere. And it'll be either with Christ or it'll be apart from him. And I can't tell you exactly what that'll look like apart from him, but the way that he describes it is that the word Gehenna means a place of misery, a place of just utter hopelessness, a place where there is no light, a place where there is no preserves, nothing preserving anything. But that is not what God desires for this world. The Bible says plainly that God gave everything, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's nothing that God has withheld from the world out there He's given everything, and now he's calling us to give everything as well. So, Lord, we just ask that we would be salt and light, Lord. And, and Lord, just where there are areas, there might be areas of sin in our lives, Lord, areas that we've left unchecked or, or that we're allowing to just rule and dominate us, God, help us. Let us go to you, Lord, admit, and, and just be real with you and, and, and get your strength into our lives, Lord, that we might cut that off. Help us to be really ready, Lord, to do drastic things to pursue holiness, Lord. Help us to, to not just be content with it. Help us to not desire it more than we would desire you. Lord, we want to be whole and we want to be full and we want to live the life that you've called us to. We want to make a difference in this world and in our community, God. And so, God, your Holy Spirit, 
is that thing that brings conviction to us, Lord, and we're asking, we're opening ourselves up to that, and we're saying, Lord, if there's areas of our lives that we're allowing the enemy too much room, if he's renting space in our heads, Lord, we just, we want him out, and help us to do the hard things that it'll take to live differently. So, Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that you've given everything, that your love for us is is uncontested, and Lord, we just want to demonstrate, we just want to live our lives back towards you in a way that's pleasing, in a way that makes a difference in this world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.